Welcome to Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dom went from a life of organized crime to federal prison. There, God saved him and set him free. Soon after his release, he attended seminary and received his master's degree and is now the senior pastor of Desert Sky Baptist Church, where he serves with a passion for biblical theology right here in Casa Grande. Now let's join our host, Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dominic Romaldi here with Street Talk Theology, where we take theology, we bring it to the streets. Welcome. And just thankful to be here. And it's an honor to be here. And any questions concerning the podcast, concerning what we're going to speak about today, Pastor Grimaldi at Gmail will be happy to interact um, and try to answer those questions as best as we can, especially in the topic that we're going to speak about today. Right, Michael? And I want to introduce Pastor Michael, and he'll let you know what's going on with um, him, and then we'll get to our special guest in a minute or two. Michael, it's happening? always yeah, it's always a joy to join you. And um, so my name is Michael, uh, and uh, I pastor a small church here in the southern tip of India called Redemption Hill Church. Um, and uh, you can know more about our church and what we do at redemptionhill.in. Um, and if you have any questions for me, uh, you can reach out to me at uh, redemptionhill.india at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if anybody is in India around the southern parts, please feel free to reach out to us. We would love for you to come and visit us and fellowship with us and uh, join us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. OK, so I'm holding a book in my hand and you guys can't see it unless you're watching on the video. Right. But I'm holding a book in my hand called Reprobation and God's Sovereignty, Recovering a Biblical Doctrine by Peter Sammons. And we happen to, we happen to have Dr. Sammons with us here today. So, uh, Peter, um, welcome to Street Talk Theology. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Um, so, Peter, reprobation and God's sovereignty. And that's a, that's a, we, we, Michael, we see a lot of books like this around, right? With the same titles and stuff. <laughs> uh, why this book, Peter? Well, I think um, one of the things when I, you know, first became a Christian and, you know, not everybody, uh, you know, comes to faith the exact same way, you know, we all have different backgrounds. And, but one of the things I really struggled with early on was understanding God's sovereignty. And I remember when I first came across the doctrine of election, you know, in scripture, uh, I was pretty like confronted with it. And how do I, what about the non-elect was a question I always thought. And so the doctrine of reprobation really is explaining how in God's eternal decree concerning the destinies of all men, uh, what he would do with the non-elect. And so um, the doctrine of reprobation is, is kind of loosely covered in a lot of systematics, very kind of cursory. It's obviously not the topic of a bunch of books or anything. And so it's one of those things that I really wanted to study to make sure I understood um, its biblical roots, what it was actually teaching, because there's a lot of confusion as to what it means. And so the doctrine of reprobation kind of, if I was to define it, is, is part of the decree of predestination. So with predestination, you have the doctrine of election, which is God's choice of individuals from before the foundation of the world to be in his son. And then you have the decree of reprobation, which is God's eternal unconditional decree for the non-elect uh, about holding them to the standards of justice. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that that definition functionally has parts to it and things, but that's kind of the 
a general way of defining it. And I really found that most clearly taught in, in texts like Romans 9, which were really difficult for me as a young believer. And so I just really want to make sure I knew the truth. And so it was really a search for understanding the character of God and the nature of how all things have been determined by him. And, and what does that look like for a just and holy God and, and a responsible creature, you know? So, so putting those things together is what really I think this book is all about and why I think it's really needed. Because if believers have studied predestination or, or anyone who's lived in the world for very often, if they're honest with themselves and they're a believer, they know they're not great, you know, but they also kind of wonder why bad things happen in this world. And, and this book, you know, is looking at that from kind of the largest scope, which is concerning the destinies of, of men, the elect and reprobate. And so it's one of those books that it, it's not like, uh, you know, the kind of thing you're going to read that's necessarily going to um, always be uplifting necessarily, but it is a sobering and, and gracious reminder that God's given us in scripture that heightens our, our love of his grace. And, and so, yeah, so it's just, I don't think it's very helpful for believers to have something to work through some of these really difficult things, not to just sweep one of the rug because the Bible talks about them, but to have them just kind of laid out in a clear way. Yeah, without a doubt. Well said. I'm going to get to uh, Michael in a second, but I, I, on the reprobate, just for a quick, just a, for a quick synopsis, if I had to say this, and, and um, you know, I want you to expound on this, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Michael. So on, we know that for God's people, God's elect, he, he does something, you know, he gives them the spirit by his grace. So would you say the reprobate, he just leaves to themselves? He doesn't, would that be a fair statement? Or can you can correct me on that? Or, or just kind of tease that out? Yeah, I mean, yeah, guys in the past have described it as that. I think that's that's a it's a very simple aspect of the definition. So it's not you know it's not wrong. It's just it's kind of uh, it's kind of simple. So within the decree of reprobation, which would be like an umbrella, it'd be God's determination of what's going to happen to the non-elect in eternity. Under that decree, and we got to separate the decree from the execution. That's where people sometimes get confused. Uh, yeah, good they start point. to think, oh well, God must be the author of sin if he's you know, if they lump those two things together, but the decree is a pre-temporal, eternal, unconditional decree for the non-elect and the side that what you just described about leaving them to themselves or, or not giving them the grace necessary or not electing them, essentially. Um, that's what we call the doctrine of preterition. It's a Latin term. It literally just means passed by. He, mm. he chose to not choose those people. In the choosing of one, you're obviously not choosing the others. And that's part of the decree of reprobation. But the other part of the decree that we oftentimes miss too is, is God is going to hold these men accountable to a standard. So to, to put that in the context of election, with election, one of the beauties of salvation in Christ is God chose to hold Christ accountable for us. That's why Christ had to face the agonies of the cross to die the death that we all owed on account of our guilt with Adam and, and our own sin. And so God holds uh, Christ accountable for the elect, but for the reprobate, he's choosing to hold them accountable. And David talks about that in scripture. Blessed is yeah. the man in whom sin you do not take account or you do not impute. And so reprobation is both of those things. One, it's the choice to pass by, to not choose, like you had mentioned. And then it's also, he's going to hold them accountable to the standard of justice. And that really helps establish the concern of how God executes that decree, because justice is at the heart of, of that determination. 
and people want that address. I think that's Psalm 32, right, Peter? With the one you Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, uh please uh you got the you got the mic. Uh, uh Peter's up for ever, any question, right, Peter? <laughs> that's right. Anything. <laughs> Uh, I think Pastor Michael, while he's getting his mic together, I do have a couple of more questions, so we keep it going, and my, uh, Michael will be um, with us in a second. Peter, let me let me ask you this, if I may. What are the most uh, helpful sources on the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Yeah, that's a doctrine that's a little bit more covered uh, historically, and, and one of the books I found most helpful was... Um, the Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. I think that's a really helpful book, um, but also books that you would notice that incorporate it very, very well are, are historical books like, for example, Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. You know, mm-hmm. it, it presupposes the doctrine of God's sovereignty and works through it as well, uh, especially the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so, um, so some of those books are really useful. Uh, again, so sovereignty, what a lot of times people don't really understand, I try to deal with this at the beginning of the book is kind of establishing definitions is that sovereignty is different than the decree. Sovereignty is what right does God have to do this? It's his authority. You know, sovereignty is another word for authority. Mm. And um, sometimes we lump that in with power and, you know, it's like, well, omnipotence is his ability to execute what he's determined, but sovereignty is what right does he have? What authority does he have? And so, you know, having a high view of the of the authority that God has over his creation is, is really vital to the doctrine. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's probably my favorite book that I read growing up on that. Um, plenty of books by R.C. Sproul deal with that as well. Um, so yeah, it's a great, great doctrine to study the sovereignty of God. It's really just about the kingliness of God, his right over creation. Yeah. I think we lost Michael. I'm sure he'll be back. I mean, it's tough you know, we, we do these uh, shows together from India, and usually sometimes we have a little um, a blip, but hopefully we'll get him back because I know he's got a couple of questions. Um, so, Peter, I, I one of the things in, in reading the book is that I was looking at the term you use. I think it was really profound was secondary causes, how God can use secondary causes, whether in, in nature or even with people. So um, would it be okay for me to define a secondary cause in the book of Exodus as God uses the east wind to bring the quail? That would be a type of secondary cause. But my, and, and if you agree with that, fine. But I'd like to hear what you mean, what you mean what God uses secondary causes in humans. So on the first front, what I said, is that, is that a fair definition of a secondary cause? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, God using a secondary agency or a medium, like using the wind, like God didn't have to use the wind. Like you mentioned, he chose to use the wind. So the wind, the wind itself would be functioning in a way that God is not the, the direct agent. It's not like he, materialized a, a body and used his hands to to guide the the quail no he used wind and so that's a secondary cause yeah that's a really good just you know simple analogy we see it every day um, secondary causes so how do we apply the secondary cause to the non-elect or for the reprobate if I may yeah that's a great question and what what really made me study that a lot was 
again, looking at how men were defining the doctrine of reprobation and how they're harmonizing this with God's holiness and justice is why secondary causes is a, is a helpful category, but it's also a biblically necessitated category. Like I've been reading through the text many times and I'll see things like God sent an evil spirit upon Saul that mm. tormented him multiple times throughout his life. Um, we see texts like that and we kind of stop and pause and we think, wait a minute, how is God sending an evil spirit? Like, how does that work? And yet God's, God's holy, right? So how can he be using a, an evil entity like that? Um, I think probably the best example is, or one of them is in Acts 2, uh, or yeah, it's Acts 2, 22 to 23 or so. And it's, you know, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. He's, and then verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's one. You nailed to the cross. There's two. By the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's three. So we have three in verse 23 parties involved in the crucifixion and death of Jesus, which is the most heinous act in the history of mankind, right? The sinless son of God deserved nothing of what happened in his death, right? He laid his life down for us. And, but nevertheless, it wasn't his judgment that he was dying for. He was dying for ours, but it gives three parties in that one text, right? You have the predetermined plan of God. You have nailed to the hands or nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. And, and you nailed him to the cross. So you have the Jews and the Gentiles involved. And yet all three of those parties have different uh, intentions in their hearts as to why they did it. They have different, you know, different motives, but they also have different levels of responsibility. Mm. And so the, the category of secondary causes now allows us to look at this text and to, to recognize that there are different levels of responsibility here. God's intention in saying his son is the most noble, honoring, exalting, loving intention of all, right? To save his people. The Jews' intention is not that. They're crucifying him as a blasphemer. They hated him. And even the Gentiles' intentions are not that. They're just kind of trying to placate the angry Jews. And so you have three different parties involved, and you can't just ascribe blame to all three equally, that wouldn't be just or fair or right. Again, one has noble intentions. One has evil intentions. Um, one does a good thing and one does a bad thing, you know? Yeah. And so the, the idea of secondary causes then allows us to look at a text like this and say, you know what? There's a more responsible agent for the culpability of the act of sin than another. And so now we have a primary cause or a direct cause, sometimes we call it an efficient cause, the, the direct agent of acting in sin. And that separates not responsibility. God takes responsibility for everything that happens on this world. But God's responsibility is in such a way that he is glorified through it, whether any, any of his attributes are made known, whether it be justice or grace um, or whatever it might be. But man is still does what he wants to do, right? Man still operates according to his fundamental nature. Each nature acts according to what is appropriate. Men willed to kill the son and God determined their will, you know, and determined their role, determined their, their operation, so to speak. Uh, but in such a way that man remains blameworthy, God remains holy, um, mm. 
So just one of those texts that we look at and we're like, we can't just flatten this out, right? We have to recognize there are, there are depths here. There are levels here, responsibility. And so secondary causes um, is a way to describe that level of responsibility that I think maintains God's holiness and, and the creature's blameworthiness. Yeah, it's tough stuff. It's good stuff, though. I mean, it's deep, and and, and it takes time. And, and Michael, we're going to get to your question, but again, I, I want to reiterate the short chapters in this book are really helpful, and I think um, I think that's really, really important. Michael, please, you back online with us. Can you hear us? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I good. missed I missed parts of it. So you'll forgive me if I ask a question again. You can just tell me, yeah, we covered that. So no, no, no. Okay. Yeah. I don't think we did. I, I tried to stay away from what you were gonna ask. Right. No, I just wanted to thank Peter again, you know, on the call for for, for this book, uh, especially for two things. One, going into this book, you know, there's a we're talking about tough subjects and tough subjects. Uh, when you write about tough subjects, it uh, tends to books tend to be tough books to read. Um, but I, I was able to follow through the book. Uh, well, it was very clearly written. It, I was able to understand it and I was able to cover much ground and it was, so I would commend it to a lot of people who might be looking at the title and going, okay, I don't, I, that's too much for me. Um, it's a book that you definitely will be able to read and understand. And the second reason, Peter, that I, I really want to kind of, you know, I know we discussed some of the things before the call, but uh, one of the important things I think about this book is a lot of people would approach the subject and, um, you know, their reaction to the subject would be, why even go into this? You know, that's, isn't, isn't, aren't we going too deep? into things we cannot understand. Um, you know, why not just leave it up to God to decide? Uh, people do. So I, I know a lot of uh, people when they come to the doctrine of election or predestination, they would come with a certain degree of, okay, why, why are we even talking about this? Why even go there? But even people who accept that uh, worldview, you know, people who, who accept the doctrine of election and stand at that point, if you talk to them about reprobation, they'll still have the same, a lot of them still have the same sentiment, which is, should we even go there? Why do we even want to go there? Uh, now, I think that we should, and there's a healthy way we can, right? And I think you display that in the book, but maybe you can talk about that kind of tension that people might feel. Yeah, you know, why, why do we talk about this? Absolutely. Some of that I do think is due to people being afraid um, some of it's due to how people were taught, maybe growing up. Um, you know, a lot of times I right. hear guys go straight to Deuteronomy 29, 29. They'll be like, the secret things belong to the Lord. And so yeah. they don't want to go any further. It's like, well, you guys forgot the second half of that verse. It says the things revealed to you belong to you and your children. Amen. And, right. um, and that's one of Amen. the things God has given us his word and special revelation that we can understand him, right? If, Romans 1 tells us that God made the world to display his invisible attributes and make them known. That's general revelation. Well, how much yeah. more in special revelation is he communicating to his, his bride, to his people, and wanting us to know something about him? And so when he talks about predestination, that means God thinks it's important, um, and he doesn't shy away from it. It's, it's all over the biblical text. Um, we see it in, in early form in Israel in the Old Testament, but we see it even more clearly in the New. And Romans 9 is, is a full chapter. And, and again, Paul's writing to Gentiles um, and he, new converts, and he's given them basically a mini systematic theology, if you would say. And he has a whole chapter in there on the issue about election and reprobation. You know, people are like, 
wait a minute, they all rejected the Savior. So is God's plan failing? And he says, no, God's plan is not failing. This is all according to plan, basically. And so I think that we have to encourage people to, to study these things. One, because they're not as difficult as we want them to be intellectually. They're just difficult because emotionally it's hard to accept the idea that God would decree the destiny of people. And, and when we do that, we start to stand in judgment of what we think God should do. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing we want to be careful of. You know, you can approach this topic saying very stubbornly, like, no, God can't do that. I reject even reading something like that or thinking about something like that. It's like, well, now you're standing in judgment of God's word and you're not really giving this a fair look, right? Like you want to kind of at least look at the text, see if, you know, you can disagree with some of my exegetical conclusions, but I try to go through Romans 9 in a, in a pretty straightforward way. Uh, but nevertheless, it's something God's word does talk about. And so we should, we should study it and talk about it. Um, but I do think it's something that believers need to, to, to wrestle with and to grapple with. And I think we need to be careful not to be lazy, right? If we could yeah. spend our whole lives studying God, uh, that would be a great end and a great, and we'd be satisfied in that end. And we would take greatest joy in that end and that delight. But a lot of times people just, when it gets tough, it's tough because they don't like it. And then they just use yeah. that as an excuse. I think lazy excuse to kind yeah. of not look into these things. And the Lord put them in print. He wrote them down for us and yeah. gave them to us so we can study him. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, even as you were saying that we as a church, you know, we study the book of Romans and uh, a, a majority of the people in the church weren't reformed. They weren't Calvinists, you know, so we yeah. went through the book and by the end they were all Calvinists and yeah. they, they, they were joyful. But one of the things that I kept warning the church, even as we were reading, we could see reactions was Romans one to eight is kind of difficult to follow because of the way the language goes, the way Paul's arguments go, the way he talks about law. And then he talks about grace, the way he talks about Jews and he talks about Greeks and you've got all of that. And there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of complicated things to understand, but the moment you hit Romans 9, the language gets simple from a, from a plain perspective, and suddenly it's difficult for people to believe, you know? Yeah. So it's easy to follow, but it just <laughs> becomes difficult for people to believe. Listen, guys, yeah. I got to, I gotta, this is great, but so this, is, this was my way to try. To, you you got to watch out for them New Yorkers, Peter. This is my way to get, Peter back to get Peter back to come because we didn't even get he didn't even get a chance to plug his book. And, you know, I want to do that because people need to read this book. So I would humbly ask uh, Mr. Peter Sammons, would you come back and do another 25 minutes with us? Because um, we're out of time and I want to make sure people know where to get this book, how they can get this book and. That's kind of my Italian way to get him back on the show for another half hour, but he can tell me no. Would you, would you mind joining us again for one more segment? Would that be okay? Oh, it'd be a privilege, and I'd love to do it. Um, plus, he told me he's a Yankee fan. No, he told me he's a Cardinal fan, but uh, <laughs> but they did have. But you know, the Cardinals had a great Italian manager. Did you know that, uh, Peter? Oh Tony? yeah, they have a lot of great Italians in their history. Yeah, Tony LaRusso, right? He was a... Yeah, oh, anyway, he was the man. Yeah, so, um, okay, well, this is Dominic Romaldi uh, with Pastor Michael Kenny, and uh, it was an honor to have Peter Sammons today. This is Street Talk Theology, where we take theology and bring it to the streets, and we'll, uh, we'll bring Peter back uh, next time. Okay, God bless, guys. 
Thank you for joining us for Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. You can visit Pastor Dom at Desert Sky Baptist Church at 891 West Corson Road, Casa Grande. And for more information, visit us online at www.desertskybaptist.org.